בשם השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה, ברוכים הבאים. Glad to be here, ברוך השם, back in Aventura, the best of center. We have our uh, series, Musar Perkei Avot, we are up to 107, ברוך השם. 107, there's somewhere in a neighborhood of, uh, I'd like to say, almost 400 hours. Almost 400 hours of uh, Musar just in this series alone. And uh, every day we're getting some more good news of different people that heard different things in the shiurim and doing tshuva. So a uh, few things to talk about today. Uh, we're going to continue the Mishnah that we started last week. That's a Mishnah Hey Yud Gimel. We'll uh, also talk a little bit about Shavuot. Uh, coming up next week, and we'll talk more about it as far as the specifics, halachot, and things of that nature tomorrow. But uh, give you, and just in case you don't show up tomorrow, whatever the case may be, just give you a little bit of chidush uh, about Shavuot that I learned. Um, aside from that, also talk about the situation right now that we have in the world that uh, if it, my opinion actually mattered, then I would tell you that we are in the worst situation that we've been in as far as Judaism is concerned, most likely since Choban Bet HaMikdash. And I'll explain to you why in a moment. I know that a lot of people are going to hate me for it, but Baruch Hashem, we need to add to the list on a regular basis. If we're not adding haters, then we're not doing a good job. So, uh, and I'll give you some updates as far as the Yigun, as far as Bezat Hashem, what we're doing. So, Bezat Hashem, today's shiur will be for Refua Shlema, for Chava Batchana. Uh, may Hashem bless her with Refua Shlema, eliminate any of her worries. The testing that she's having done right now, Baruch Hashem, is going to be okay, and uh, allow her to continue doing the tshuva that she's been doing. Bezat Hashem, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, will give Refua Shlema Levana Bat Sarah, Sarah Bat Levana. Uh, Doris Bat Nesriya, David Bat uh, Ben uh, Jora, um, and uh, anybody else? Uh, Elisheva Chaya Bat Sara, Odaya Bat Sara, Juan Sedeno, and all of Am Yisrael Bezat Hashem will have a refuah shlema, refuah nefesh, refuah guf, and uh, of course Hashem knows what's in our hearts. Sometimes you want to say refuah shlema to a certain person, but you don't want to mention their name. Maybe they'll uh, not realize that they're sick. You know, most people think that sickness is a physical thing. And the reality is that the physical aspect of being sick is nowhere near as dangerous as the spiritual aspect. Because when you're sick physically, most of the time if you have decent doctors and you're a human being, you can notice it. You're coughing, your stomach hurts, your head hurts. Your eyes may be bleeding or something. Something's happening. You know you're sick. When you're spiritually sick, you could walk around on this planet for 70, 80, 90 years and not realize that you're walking dead. And unfortunately, that's the situation that uh, we find ourselves in today in a generation where the wealth of Torah 
is extraordinary, Baruch Hashem. We have a lot of Torah in the world. Easy access to Torah. With the press of a button, you can go to BezratHashem.org and see a, uh, hundreds or thousands of hours between me and uh, Rabbi Ephraim. Uh, hours of, of Torah on every subject you want. You want scientific, you want logical, rational, musar, alakha. Things you like, things you don't like. Hebrew, English, even translations to German, Korean, Spanish. What else do you want? And just in case you get bored of us, we also have a link to go to Rabbi Mizrahi's website. And over there, wah, you have thousands of hours, thousands of hours, thousands of lectures. Thousands of lectures, ten thousands of hours, Baruch Hashem. So it's a generation where you have an enormous amount of Torah. And this, just, this site is just one of many that you have available to you in the world. On the other hand, you have to beg people to learn Torah. So supply and demand is problematic in the world of Torah. Because usually something that's good is highly demanded. Highly demanded. Something that's bad is not demanded at all. There's always a crazy guy that wants it, but in general, there's not much demand for it. But in a world that the sages call Alma de Shika, the world of lies, it's quite the opposite. The holiness and the purity of the Torah is not demanded at least not anywhere near where it should. And the impurity of the world, whether it be politics or money or stock market or uh, sex, or all of the sins that we can possibly make, unfortunately it's the only thing that's demanded. Now, in the Gemara Masechet Ta'anit, the sages say that not everyone is going to be happy when the Mashiach comes. I believe I mentioned this also on Sunday, but it's worth repeating. I'm going to ask you a question to start off this year. Who do you think the sage was talking about? When he said that not everyone is going to be happy when a Mashiach comes. Anyone that was there on Sunday, don't answer. Who do you think he was talking about? Is he talking about the Mechalil Shabbat? He's not going to be happy when Mashiach comes? The guy that's married to a Goya? Maybe he's not going to be happy when Mashiach comes? The, the woman that's eating taref? for breakfast every day because she likes it, she's not going to be happy when Mashiach comes. Is that who he's referring to? Or is he referring to the guy with the beard longer than mine? And the hat. And the black and white uniform. And the woman with the kisurosh. And the wig. Who is he talking about? Is he talking about the religious or the yeshiva guy? Is he talking about the avrech? Or is he talking about the rock and roll star? The reality is, Rabotai, is that if you learn a little bit of Musar, you learn a little bit of Gemara, you learn a few halachot, this is not really a question. Just like anyone that asks, who created the world? And you say Hashem. You say, who created Hashem? He says, it's not really a question. It's a non-starter question. It's a retarded question. Because if God has a God, then He's not God. Same concept here. This is a non-starter question. Why is it a non-starter question to say, to, to, to ask, who is he referring to? Because anyone that learns halacha, 
and knows the damage that's caused by intermarriage to the soul, or by Chilut Shabbat, or by eating Chilev, which is a part of the non-kosher food, non-kosher meat, non-kosher fats, knows clearly that this person has nothing to do with Mashiach. A woman that's not modest in the middle of the street has no concern whatsoever about Mashiach. She shouldn't be worried about Mashiach at all. Why? She'll be destroyed immediately. She has no chance. There's no, it's not, there's not a concern. There's no machloket here. There's no like some people believe this. There's some opinions that say that everybody's going to be okay when Mashiach comes, even if they're walking around half naked in the street. And some people see the Mechalel Shabbat that drove to, you know, on Shabbat to go see Mashiach. He's going to be okay anyway because maybe Mashiach needs a ride. No one says that. You look at the entire halacha, you look at all of the books, you look at all of the sages. The people that are Mechalel Shabbat, intermarried, and all of the other things, all the other major sins, if they're still sinners at the time of Mashiach, they have nothing to worry about. Why? They'll be destroyed immediately. Meaning that the sage was not referring to them not being happy about Mashiach coming. Because it's a kalvachomer, it's a needless to say that they're not going to be happy. They're Shabbat, they have no chance. Who's the one he's referring to as not going to be happy? The religious one. Why the religious one? Because every religious person thinks that he's really religious. Every religious person thinks that he's ultra-religious. Every religious person thinks that tshuva is for secular people. Every religious person thinks that tshuva is for someone else. Or some, something they used to do. Or they did in the past and they're finished. I finished doing tshuva. I finished. Finished. It's like my daughter, whenever she finishes one of our toys, she says, I'm finished. Abba, I'm finished. It's like, it's five minutes only. Finished. Okay, we have to get something else now. Finished. Cutest thing in the world. So the religious people think they're finished. They're finished with tshuva. Why? They did tshuva 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Their, their grandfather did tshuva. You know what kind of rabbi my, my grandfather was? You know how big my, my grand-grandfather was? You know how big my father was? My brother's a huge rabbi in Muncie. My, okay, they're all okay. What about you? This is so silly when people, you really think about it. I heard Ravi again one time say this. It's the most absurd thing in the world when people say, you know how religious my father is? You know how big of a, of a, a rabbi my grandfather was? It's the most ridiculous, ludicrous thing on the planet. Why? If, let's say, for example, Barminan, you have a situation, you have a serious situation, you have to go get a surgery. Now, who are you going to go get a surgery from? From the guy that's actually a surgeon? Or the guy that says, you know how big of a surgeon my father was? My grandfather, you know how big of a surgeon he was? Yeah, what about you? No, I never went to surgery school. I never went to medical school. But you know how big? My grand, look, my plaques over there. That's my picture. But the, that's just me in Luna Park. And, 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 and see, my grandfather's behind me. So I know it. So it's my grandfather. And that's, that's his medical certificate. Okay, so if he was here and you were on the wall, I'd take a surgery. It's the most ludicrous thing in the world to say my grandfather was a surgeon. My grandmother was a surgeon. You're not going to get a surgery from this person. To say your parents and grandparents and everybody's parents and everybody's grandparents are religious is complete nonsense. The reality is every Jewish family, if you look far enough, has a sage connected to them. Not just a rabbi, a sage, a giant, a gdolado, 
Just go far enough. Even if you have to go all the way back to Avraham Avinu, you'll find it. Every family has a major rabbi. Every family has a major sage. But we walk around thinking that we're healthy and that tshuva is not something that we even need to consider because we already wear the hat, we wear the wig, we wear the beard, we wear the clothes, we have go to the school and we do all these things that we do. And the exterior looks picture perfect. Little do we know that the Gemara is talking about us, that when the Mashiach comes, we're not going to be happy. Why? Because you're not going to be saved. Why were you not going to be saved? Because you thought you were religious. And you weren't. If you didn't think you were religious, that means you would do tshuva. If you did tshuva, you'd be saved. You'd be okay. And that's the problem, Rabotai. And the problem, the reason why I say this is the biggest thing we've seen since the Beit HaMikdash is not because of what I just said, but rather because of what's happening in the world. If you remember, I told you that the Parashat Bechukotai has a scary punishments to talk about one after another. Hashem says that if you do everything He says, in Bechukotai Telechu, if you follow my decrees and observe my commandments and perform them, then I will provide your rains in their time. And then he continues and he says, I'll provide peace in the land. You'll pursue your enemies and they will fall before you by the sword, meaning you'll have no problems. On the other hand, if you don't, not just some of them, all of them, he continues and he says, but if you will not listen to me and will not perform all of these commandments and consider my decrees loathsome, meaning they'll be disgusting to you, will treat my mitzvot as if they're something disgusting, you're going to run away from them. I tell you to keep tarat mishpachai and tell me, no, I don't want to go to the mikveh, it's disgusting. What's disgusting? You go to a pool where all the little kids urinate all day and all night there. They have a competition who can urinate more times. But you go over there, you don't say it's disgusting. Yeah, but it has chlorine. So does the mikveh. And no one urinates in the mikveh, Baruch Hashem. But it's disgusting. A lot of people have been there. Okay, a lot of people have been a lot of places. You're not saying it's disgusting. What's disgusting? Yetzirah is disgusting. Yetzirah is disgusting. And he's making you think the mitzvah of Tarat Mishpacha is disgusting. You're thinking that Hashem's mitzvot are disgusting. This is not like the previous generation where we had no money and no land and no nothing. And a mikveh was a hole in the ground with some dirty water in it. But that's what we had to do. Because a mikveh is not a shower. It's not supposed to clean you. It's supposed to purify you. It's two different things. You could be dirty but still pure. You could be clean but completely tameh. So Hashem says, if you consider my mitzvot loathsome, if you reject my ordinances, so as not to perform them, not to perform all my commandments, then I will do the same to you. And I will assign upon you panic, swollen lesions, burning fevers, kind of sounds like my sickness for seven years, which cause eyes to long and souls to suffer. Horrible things. Those who hate you will subjugate you. You will flee with no one pursuing you. You're running away, but no one's chasing you. Why? You're stressed out. 
IRS, bankruptcy court, uh, the landlord, the neighbor, the cat, the dog, something is always after you. This is a form of punishment from Hashem. Now everyone read this parasha. Nine out of ten people, in my opinion, didn't understand a single word. Why? Because if you read this parasha and understand what it means, you do tshuva on the spot. On the spot, you have to do tshuva. Why? You have to be crazy to believe what it says, understand and believe what it says and not do tshuva. You have to be seriously crazy. And if you're crazy, you're patu from the mitzvot anyway. You don't have to worry about anything. But if you understand and believe what it says and you didn't do tshuva, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Now how come there are many people that do understand and believe, but they're not worried? Why? The reason why, Rabotai, is because the Yetzirah is a genius. The Yetzirah is such a genius that the only way we can beat them is with an enormous amount of Torah. Not just a little Torah, an enormous amount of Torah, like an overdose of Torah, if possible. Why? Because the Yetzirah is going to come to us in different creative ways to make us feel like we're okay. He's going to give us a lot of money. So we don't have to worry about Panasa. He's going to give us good community. So we don't have to worry about, at least think, we don't have to worry about our kids. He's going to give us freedom. So we don't have to worry about persecution. And all of these different things. And then he gives us some president that likes Jews, apparently. His daughter converted Yishtabach Shimo. So, he then decides to open up a new office in Jerusalem. Tell us it's our country. Thank you for reminding us. And people feel this is the greatest thing ever. I have nothing against Donald Trump. I'm actually wearing a tie that says Trump. As a human being, he seems like a decent person. has a lot of gava. He has to work on himself. But I don't know him personally enough to know if he's bad or good. It's irrelevant. I know that according to the Torah, Hashem takes away the free choice of the leaders. We saw it with Paro. We saw it with Sichon. We saw it with Nebuchadnezzar. We saw it several times in the Torah that Hashem takes away the free choice in order to run the world. He takes away the free choice of the leaders. So even if he himself tries to do good and wants to do good, only Hashem can decide what will be and what won't be. Everyone. The problem is, Rabotai, is that everyone thinks that everything is fine and dandy and the Yeshuat Hashem already arrived. Because they opened an embassy in Yerushalayim, they're talking peace with the Koreans, they're saying they're going to back us if something happens with Iran. Everything sounds great. So when they bring one of their Ovdeh Avodah Zarah, one of their priests that's an idol worshiper, to go give a speech in Yerushalayim and tell everybody oh, a nice speech to motivate them and then ends up the speech by saying, and let us say thank you to our God, J.C. Penny." And everyone says, including some of the rabbis there, the religious people there, wow, wow, kola kavod, kola kavod. Instead of spitting at the guy, 
or at the very least looking away. What is it? Call a kavod. Why is it meragesh? Is it meragesh? It's so. It's so. It's so. I'm, 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 wow! Wow! What a speech! They made it like Moshe Rabbeinu gave a speech. Chilul Hashem. I've never seen such a thing in my life. Religious people saying call a kavod to a to a speech where somebody ends the speech by saying, "Let's thank Avodah Zarah." Let's thank Avodah Zarah. Let's thank J.C. Penny. Kol kavod. Now, it's not going to surprise you that the very same time they had this, this was a letter that was written by the Arab brothers that we have. They're such good brothers, these people. I'm being sarcastic. And this is the letter they dispensed because we read in Parashat B'chukotai last week that someone's going to chase us, someone's not going to chase us, we're, we're going to have problems. Okay, so let's see what kind of problems we have. Now, you know, when is a tzaddik balair, there's a tzaddik that comes to the city, or a rabbi comes to the city, and they say, listen, rabbi so-and-so is coming to the city to give a lecture. And maybe they give a little bio about the rabbi, or the tzaddik, or if it's a lecture, they give, you know, they tell you a few things. Right? Le'avdi, this is what the Arabs do. The Arabs are saying the following. This is an actual official letter. They distribute it all over their town. Monday morning will begin with a gathering at 10 a.m. Along with a jachir route from Bet Hanun until Rafa. A starting time will be announced. And after this time, all demonstrators will start going in one mass with stout heart towards the fence until it is knocked down. The march will be accompanied by loudspeakers that will inflame the crowd and prevent the group from being dispersed. The advance will be made behind bulldozers that will take down the fence, clearing a path through it for the demonstrators. The demonstrators, special request guys, the demonstrators are requested to please act in accordance with the demand to bring a knife or a gun to hide them under their clothes and not use them except where there is a need to capture soldiers or residents of Israel. You would think he's asking him to bring like uh, ice cream and sandwiches for the children. It is requested not to kill them, but to hand them over to the resistance forces as this is an important bargaining chip of which Israel is afraid of. It is necessary to take actions to chase the snipers from their positions. It is necessary to expose their positions and plan actions against them well. Don't bother yourself with the wounded or the dead, meaning their own wounded and their own dead. Don't bother yourself. Why? That will be taken care of by the medical teams. Whose medical teams? The Israeli medical teams. Your protesters' job is to act wisely on the ground and follow the instructions. What are the instructions? Bring a knife, bring a gun, shoot the soldiers and kidnap them. This is our next door neighbor. It was in Arabic, it was translated. And this happened on Monday. A couple days ago. Yesterday. Why? Hashem has to wake us up out of the slumber that we're in. 
We're all comfortable sitting here in the United States or in Israel or in Europe or wherever we are, thinking everything is fine, while the reality is that we're as far from it as possible. And part of the reason is because we think that the salvation is going to come through government. We think that the salvation is going to come through some type of uh, political policy, some type of peace. And we're as far from the truth as possible. Now, over the last nearly 50 days, 46 days, we've been counting the Omer. Countdown from Pesach, Yitzhak Mitzrayim, until Shavuot, 50 days. Seven weeks plus one. Now the Chachamim ask a question. It's a very good question. question is, what happens on the 50th day? Shavuot. Don't jump for the answers. Not all once, guys. Shavuot's on the 50th day. We have less than a week left. What's on Shavuot? Why are we celebrating Shavuot? What happened on Shavuot? We got the Torah. We got the Torah. But we didn't get the Torah. You're saying we got the Torah on the, on the 50th day, right? But we didn't get the Torah on the 50th day. We got the Torah on the 51st day. So how come we're celebrating Matan Torah on the 50th day if we got the Torah on the 51st? So the Maharsha, Allah Shalom, gives an extraordinary answer. He says that in order for us to get the Torah, we have to we had to go from the 49th level of impurity to the 49th level of purity. From Tameh to Tao. Meaning that in order to receive the Torah, we have to prepare. You can't just receive something pure and treat it like you're supposed to without being prepared. You can't get married until you know how to be a decent human being. If you do, then I guarantee you'll get divorced. You can't be a father until you understand the responsibility that comes with it. And if you're one of these 15-year-old heroes that wants to have a kid just because he can, then you realize that your son is going to be tortured. And eventually he's going to be your father. Because you're going to be a 30-year-old mess and he's going to be a 15-year-old with no choice. He's going to have to raise you. He's going to be the father all of a sudden. It happens a lot where the kids end up becoming the parents. Because the parents never had time to mature and the kids have no choice but to mature. Meaning that in order to receive anything of any value, you have to prepare yourself. If you plan on keeping it. Now the sages tell us that we had to prepare ourselves, we had to remove all of the idolatry that we had from Mitzrayim, whether it was the idols themselves in those days or the Abu Dazarah that comes from wigs today. Whether it was believing in the Nile River or Pa'ov or the uh, goat being a god or believing that your dollar is God. Same thing. Nothing's changed. The reality is you had to prepare. It says that Hashem is giving us the Torah each year all over again. He didn't just give us the Torah back then. He's giving it to us each year all over again. But why are we celebrating the 50th day if we got the Torah on the 51st? The reason why, Rabotai, is because in order for us to get 
to that point. In order for us to get to that point of actually receiving the Torah, we had to work on our midot. We had to work on our character traits and clean up all of the disgusting Tumah that became part of us. All of the sleepy people that think that they're tzaddikim when in reality they're as far from it as can be. All of the people that are religious in uh, their own eyes. All of the people that are generous in their own eyes. All of the women that are modest in their own eyes. But in reality they're not. So this is why we had to prepare for 50 days. And after we were prepared, we got to Now, the sages continue adding to what the Maharsha said. And the Magen Avraham asked, in your Pesach Agadah, there's a section where we say Dayenu. Remember that section, Dayenu? It would have been enough if you would have taken us out of Egypt and nothing else. It would have been enough if you gave us all the miracles and nothing else and split the ocean and nothing else. It would have been enough if you took us to Mount, Mount Sinai and, not, and not, nothing else. The sages have a question about that. What do you mean? It would have been enough taking us to Mount Sinai and nothing else. Like, don't give us the Torah. What are we going to do at Mount Sinai without Torah? It's a good question. I never asked it. I only learned it this week. What am I going to do at Mount Sinai if I'm not going to get to Torah? Why did I go there? We learned from the Maasha. Maasha said, why do we go to Mount Sinai? To clean ourselves up, to learn some Musar, to clean our Midot, to fix ourselves. That would have already been enough. That would have been enough chesed from Hashem to let us do tshuva already, teaching us that it's even more important to fix our bad midot than to learn Torah. That's where it was done first. Now of course you have the two go together. You have to go hand in hand. You cannot fix your midot without Torah. But nonetheless, if a person wants to have a chance when a Mashiach comes or Gan Eden or Lama Ba and all of those things, he has to realize that working on their midot is much more critical than memorizing every single halachad that was ever said by every chacham in the last thousand years. It's all important. But fixing your midot is more important. Why? Because the Gemara specifically says, a talmid chacham in midot raot, talmid chacham with bad character traits, nevela sucha tova mimeno. A dead animal in the middle of the street is better than him. Why? Because he was supposed to fix himself as a result of the Torah. Now he learned Torah and he still didn't fix himself. There's no hope for this person. A dead animal is better than him. So this is one of the major proofs that we learned from just from this holiday, from, from Shavuot, of how critical it is to learn Musar. Because it's the only tool we have in order to fix ourselves. It's the only tool. There is no other tool. It's hard. It's different. It's in your face. It makes you second, you know, check yourself over and over again. But it's the only thing that's going to fix us. And the Holy Israel says that there are three levels of divine service. Rabbi Israel Misalant explains that if you want to actually have a good eternity... These are the three steps you have to take. 
The three levels of divine service start with the following. The first one, the gateway and the beginning, the beginning of your tshuva, what is it? Developing a sensitivity to your own flaws. Developing a sensitivity, meaning check yourself over and over again. And, because, and notice that, oh, ah, I didn't pray on time. Ah, I just violated Shabbat. Ah, I just wasted seed. Ah, I just looked at this girl I wasn't supposed to. Ah, I d- start noticing when you're sinning and or start rebuking yourself. You don't need uh, me walking after you all day, hey, do this, do this. You don't need that. You know when you did wrong. You know when you did right. It's simple. You know right and wrong. Hashem gave you a neshama. You know right and wrong. If you're doing wrong, and there's bad things that are happening in your life, you have to connect the dots. That's what, that's what distinguishes you from an animal. Animal works off of instinct. So when the animal goes and chases down another f- uh, uh, food, he's not thinking, oh, you know, if I eat the zebra, his it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, kids are going to cry, his wife is going to be, uh, be alone. You know, he's, he's the one that was really bringing most of the money in the house. He's not, the lion is th- not thinking like this. When the cow is hungry, he's not thinking, ah, you know what, I should share the grass. I should share some of this grass with my friend. He's not thinking like this. He's thinking, I'm going to eat whatever I have in front of me. So when the butcher says, hey, cow, come, come over here, come, kapa'alecha, come, come over here, come, and he slaughters it, the cow is not thinking, oh, maybe it's because I ate the grass. Maybe it's because I didn't share. He doesn't think like that. Why? Because he's an animal. He's a cow. He doesn't think, oh, maybe I did something bad and that's why they're slaughtering me. Which means, Abutai, that we cannot be cows. If you did something bad, you must have the intuition, the ability, the inclination, and the willpower to connect the dots. Nothing bad happens without Hashem signing off on it. Gemara Masechet Chulim, page 8. 5. Nothing bad in the world happens without Hashem saying, has to happen. Which means that if you got into an accident of any kind, if you have a bad feeling of any kind, it's because something happened. Hashem is talking to you in that way. Doesn't mean He hates you. It's the opposite. It actually means He loves you. He's giving you an opportunity to fix it. If He hated you, He lets you continue doing sins, sins, sins without even feeling any remorse. So the first step of tshuva rabotai is developing the sensitivity to your own flaws and the need to repent, the need to do tshuva for these sins. How do you do this? The Holy Israel says, Abi Israel Misalant, he says, this is engendered by studying Chazal's dictums and our sages' Musar teachings. A person must repeat them over and over and over and over again until he is finally moved and senses a lacking in his soul. Meaning, a Musar book is not like a Harry Potter book. It's not like a non-fiction book. It's not like a bio. A Musar book is something you have to repeat over and over again, meditate on, think about, try to figure out how it applies to you, it could take you a year to finish a 200-page book. Assuming that you're a normal reader and you could finish that in a month or two months. The point being is that it, should take, it could take you 10 times longer. 
to read a Musar book if you really read it. Or you're going to read the same book 5, 10, 20 times. I have some students tell me, it's like, I can't believe it. I watched a shiur that you made when you made it. And then I watched it again a week later and I got something completely different out of it. And then I watched the shiur again just to see. Maybe, I, there's no way. I, this time I got I watched the shiur twice already. Same shiur, twice. Let's watch shiur three times. It goes the same shiur, third time, something completely different. I said, yes, that's the beauty of the Torah. That's the beauty of the Torah, especially when it comes to Musa. So, Rabbi Yisrael Salant is telling you that when you're learning Musa, you have to read it over and over again until it moves you. Meaning that sometimes you can read something and it doesn't change anything. You learn about violating Shabbat and it doesn't do anything for you. You learn about being, uh, you know, instead of being greedy, being generous, doesn't move you. You learn about the problems of having your ego, a big ego, doesn't move you. And so on and so forth. Read it until it does. That's the first step. Second step, second level, he says, is conquering the evil inclination. Once you realize there's a problem, you have to start overcoming it. Once you realize that you're not allowed to have a huge ego, once you realize that you're not allowed to get angry on a regular basis, or ever really, once you realize that all of these bad character traits are strictly forbidden in the Torah, you have to overcome it. That's, what, again, what distinguishes us from being an animal. They work off of instinct. We don't. If you have a midah, you can change it. Thinking, no, no, I was born angry, I'll die angry. It's like saying I was born without any money, so I might as well just die. I'm not going to go to work. Well, you still go to work. No, no, nothing stops you from going to work. Nothing stops you from dream, dreaming of being rich. So how come when it comes to fixing yourself, there's something stopping you before you start? It's an excuse. So you have to start conquering the Yetzirah. Of course, some are going to be harder than others, some are going to be easier than others, but the point is you have to battle it out and start doing it. Do something about it. Sometimes you beat it today, and tomorrow you fail. Get up, try again. Beat it again, two, three, four days, and now you fail again. Try up, get up, do it again. How many times? Forever. There's no such thing as a person that doesn't make sins. Everybody makes sins. The point is doing tshuva. Now you're only going to get to that second level if you already have the first one, which means that you're sensitive to actually making sins. After that, the third level, the Holy Israel says, is rectification of the evil inclination so that he will rejoice and delight in his divine service. Pretty much destroying the Yetzirah, where at that point you realize, get out of my house. Not that you beat it and oh, you, you just held on and you didn't make this sin. Now you're actually celebrating the fact that you're doing what Hashem wants and not what the Yetzirah is doing. So this is all a process. It only starts with something that's simple that everybody here can do. Realize you're making a sin. Acknowledge there's a problem. Acknowledge that we're sick. After that, we can start working on a cure. So the Mishnah Avot that we started last week talked about the sickness of how people view materialism.
ארבע מידות באדם, האומר, שלי שלי ושלך שלך, זו מידה בינונית. ויש אומרים מידת זו מידת סדום, שלי שלך ושלך שלי עם הארץ, שלי שלך ושלך שלך חסיד, שלך שלי ושלי של, שלי רשע. Translation. There are four character types among people. First one says, this is referring to materialism, to property and so on. One who says, my property is my property, and yours is yours. This is the average character type, but some say this is the characteristic of Sodom. Why? Because the person that says what's mine is mine and yours is yours is an antisocial person. But the problem is not the fact that he's antisocial. Sometimes being antisocial is the only choice you have. The Rambam says in the Chotshuvah, if you live in a community where everybody's a rasha, you have to move. Even if moving, even if your only choice is moving to the desert. If that's your only choice where your next door neighbor is a scorpion and, a, and the other one is, an, is a snake, go move there. Why? You cannot live next to Rashaim. If it's a mix, it's a mix. It's fine. There's always going to be a mix. But the point is, is that a person that's antisocial, that's not the problem. The problem is, is that he's selfish too. When he's selfish and he says, mine is mine and yours is yours, he's in the middle of being a chassid or a rasha. If he changes and he says, what's mine is yours and what's yours is yours, meaning everything is yours, then he turns into a chassid, highest level. On the other hand, if he says, what's mine is mine, and what yours is mine, everything is mine, then he's a rasha. Meaning that he has the character trait of both. At any moment, he's going to turn into, either into Moshe Rabbeinu, or to Bilam. And that's the dangerous. And we went over the details of why and how last week. The second one is a person that says, mine is yours is, and yours is mine. This is an Amaaretz. This is an unlearned person. This is where we finished off last week. Why? This is simply a clueless person. He says that mine is yours, yours is mine. You know, it's kumbaya. We're all happy together. He's a hippie, this guy. Also a communist too. The problem is, is that that type of mentality means that the person is not happy with his own share. So he's very excited, and even more than that, to volunteer his stuff, to volunteer his responsibilities. But when it comes to the world around him, he can't stop looking at the grass being greener. A lot of people complain to me on a regular basis about money. The reality is that we've already learned in this series is a very, very simple solution to all of your money problems. Someone who's rich, who's really rich, what is it? does it say Donald Trump rich? Does it say that uh, Bill Gates is rich? Does it say that who's rich? Someone that's happy with his share. Meaning, regardless of what Hashem gave you, be happy. That makes you rich. 
the numbers on the screen that's connected to your bank account are irrelevant. Irrelevant. If you think you need more numbers in order to make you rich, I can show you somebody that has that and still considers themselves poor. But you can say, no, no, but I'll be happy. Yeah, he said the same thing. She said the same thing. When they were in your shoes. And they'll never be happy. Why? Because the Gemara Masechet Sukkah says, no person on earth is different in this specific issue. You give him 100, he wants 200. You give him 200, he wants 400. You give him 400, he wants 800. Everyone always wants more, and not a single person ever died with even half of what he wanted. Meaning, even what they had, they weren't happy with, so that wasn't even half of what they wanted. But who is the one that's happy? The one that's really rich. How is he rich? He's already happy with whatever he has. Even if what he has is a, a box of pencils, some water, and maybe a few books. He's happy? Baruch Hashem, he's rich. He's as rich as it gets. If you think you need money to be rich, you're already in the wrong direction. You're already on the wrong road. If you're looking to become a millionaire and you think that's going to make you happy, you have several, you have to start this whole series from the beginning. The whole series, we're 107 in, you have to start from number one again. And do the whole thing in a week. Don't sleep. Because seriously, if you think you need money, you haven't learned a single thing. If you've watched the series, and you still think that you need money in order to be happy, you haven't learned a single thing. A thousand hours, without a single thing that you've learned. Unfortunately, we have some students like that, they watch every shiur and they don't learn a single thing. I have some people that send me questions and I say, listen, you watched this year? Oh yeah, I watched it a couple of times. I say, you speak English? We answered the question. I don't understand. Maybe they're using this shiur as background music. They like the sound of my voice maybe. Because we answered the question. The question is answered in the shiur. The point is, Rabotai, is that sometimes we make enough sins that even if somebody gives you the answer, even if somebody gives you the cure, you won't even see it. They hit you in the face. So we have to do tshuva. We have to hear it again. Just like Oli Israel said, just like Rabbi Yisrael Yisrael said, you have to repeat it over and over and over and over again until you get it. Until you get it. If you still think you need money to be rich, you haven't learned a single thing. Because this is the reason why this parasha. Parashat Bamidbar, this week's parasha, repeats over and over again. The whole book is called Bamidbar. What's Bamidbar mean? In the desert. What, Hashem needs to remind us that we're in a desert? We know we're in a desert. We're in a desert for 40 years. The first verse says, Bamidbar Sinai. Where else are we? We know Sinai. We went to Mount Sinai already last. The last book and the book before that. Why are you reminding us again that He spoke to us in Mount Sinai, which is in a desert? Where else is it going to be? In, uh, in Tel Aviv? Where else is it going to be? In New York? Mount Sinai changed direction. He changed, changed location. Where did it go? How come you're reminding us again? Bamidbar. And again, you'll see through this parasha, over and over and over again, Hashem says desert, 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 wilderness, whatever you want to call it. But Bamidbar in Hebrew. Bamidbar means in the wilderness or desert. Why is he repeating the desert so many times? We know we're in a desert. And we're going to be here for 40 years. Why do you keep repeating in Hashem? Hashem is telling us, if you want to inherit Torah, you want to have the schut to do real tshuva, 
Put your mind in the desert. Separate from all materialism. Separate from materialism. We're not saying go and become homeless. But don't become obsessed with materialism. Don't yearn for it like you yearn for air. Don't make your whole life dependent on this materialism. There's no problem with being rich. There's a problem with being addicted to it. There's no problem with food. There's a problem with eating too much. There's no problem with being with your wife. There's a problem with being with her too often. Meaning everything with tact. Everything has to have some type of control. Hashem says, you want to do tshuva? Even your tshuva has to be under control. You want to learn Torah? Your Torah has to be under a controlled environment. What? Separate from your office. Separate from your house. Separate from your wife. Separate from your kids. Separate. It's me and you. It's like a cheder yichud with Hashem. In the old days, the tradition was that after a couple would get married, since Baruch Hashem in Judaism there's no intimacy or anything like it before marriage, the minag that some, some, some uh, of the really frum people still keep to this day is at the wedding day, after the marriage, after they have the chuppah, they go into a room by themselves. Not to chas v'shalom do anything, but just sit with each other and talk. This is the time where they really like get really close. They can talk openly. There is less l- nervousness. Some of them tell that all they do is just eat because they've been fasting all day. But the point is like a cheder yichud. It's a, a, a room where you have freedom, finally. All the nervousness is behind you. The marriage is done. You can do whatever you want. You can hug, you can kiss, whatever you want to do. But the point is you don't have all the pressures that you've had over these last several months to get to this point, or maybe even your whole life to finally get to this point. Chabotai, when you're learning Torah, you have to treat it as a cheder yichud with Hashem. It's only you and Him. Your phone does not belong there. Your friends don't belong there. It's you and Him. Hashem says, you want to and get my Torah? Remember, you have to separate from the world around you. You want to fulfill my Torah? You have to, you have to stop caring about what your neighbor says. Like we said on Sunday, the Ba'alei Musal said it many times in Hebrew in the old days. The woman that's afraid to start covering her hair by putting a mitpachat or a hat is not afraid of, a, of Hashem. She's afraid of her neighbor. She's afraid what her neighbor is going to say. A wonderful Jewish woman called me today and she said, I can't believe it. I can't believe that these wigs are not allowed. I said, why can't you believe it? She says, because everybody's wearing them. I said, so how come, the, what difference is that? She says, well, I don't understand. If, how come the rabbis are not screaming in the middle of the streets saying it's not allowed? It's Abu Dazarah. Abu Dazarah is not allowed. No Posek in the history of Am Yisrael has ever said that Abu Dazarah is allowed. And since we know for sure that the majority of wigs are coming from India, it's Abu Dazarah. It's not a Safik. So how come these, every rabbi is not going in the middle of the street saying it's not allowed? I said, listen, people are biased. People are choosing to be blind. There's many, many reasons for it. 
But the point is, what about you? The whole world's going to change eventually, one way or another. What about you? She goes, well, me, I wear a kisugosh most of the time. But sometimes I wear a wig. When is it sometimes? I go, when I go to events, I go to bar mitzvah, weddings, I wear a wig. Oh, I said, so, okay, so wherever Hashem is not, that's where you go, that's where you wear the wig? Because no, Hashem is everywhere. So how come you wearing a wig there? If Hashem is there, you're not allowed to wear the wig. That's why you wear the mitpachat, right? Yeah, so how come you wear the wig over there? The answer is, Rabotai, is because sometimes we're more afraid. She admitted herself and she agreed to stop wearing the wig altogether, Baruch Hashem. Why? Because she realized that our whole fear is not of Hashem. It's not of the Shekhinah. Her fear is of the neighbor, the Shekhinah. The Shekhinah is not someone you're supposed to be afraid of. The Shekhinah is who you're supposed to be afraid of. The Shekhinah doesn't matter if she comes over to your house. The Shekhinah, you want her to come to your house. Because the Shekhinah can help you. The Shekhinah the doesn't do anything for you. It just talks bad about you anyway. And that's what we have to understand, Rabotai. The Baalei Musa in the previous generation and still to this day say the same thing all the time. Many people take this and realize, oh, you know what? This is complete nonsense. This is Yetzirah. I don't need this Shmata on my head because it's going to make my neighbors happy. What do I care about the neighbors? I care about Olam Abba. I care about my kids being Jewish. I care about my, uh, my husband only looking at me and not at everybody else. If he knows that I'm preserving all of my beauty for him, He's going to preserve his eyes too. But if I look like some model that came out of uh, Fifth Avenue and he sees every guy look at me, what is he going to do naturally? He's going to look at every guy's wife also. He's like, yeah, you look at mine, I'll look at yours. Sharing. Yet Sarah is very smart, Rabotai. So the first thing, Rabotai, is you have to bring yourself to a state of mind where you're in a desert. Stop caring about your neighbors. Stop caring about all of these things that are just part of the Yetzirah. Now the Amaharetz is a person that thinks that all of this, of what we just talked about for nearly an hour, the entire spiritual development of a person, the Amaharetz, the, the um, unlearned person, thinks that all of that is the responsibility of Hashem. He says, what's yours is mine. And what's mine is yours. Meaning, my responsibility to do mitzvot, you got to help me. You got to help me out. But yours, your money, your chesed, your kindness, all the stuff that you have to offer, man, give it to me. It's mine, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. Give me more, give me more, give me more, give me more. Meaning, we rely on Hashem. We say, let Hashem do tshuva for me. And let me just enjoy His world anyway, without doing tshuva. And this is the unlearned person. He's very, very dangerous to society and to himself. And that's what Rabbunu Mipshischa said, is that when a person starts thinking that the responsibility to do tshuva, the responsibility of developing himself, is Hashem's responsibility instead of his own, then he's clearly an amalist. Then he clearly hasn't learned a single thing. Because the Torah starts off by telling us, Yirat Hashem Iotzaro, the beginning, the, the greatest treasure that Hashem has is Yirat Shemaim. And that treasure 
is only inherited by your effort. It's not something that you have naturally. You're afraid of everything else. You're afraid of bugs. You're afraid of being poor. You're afraid of being alone. You're afraid of heights. You're afraid of all types of things. But afraid of Hashem does not come to us naturally because if it did, there'll be no purpose to the world. So now that we finish with the introduction, let's continue with what the Mishnah says. The Mishnah continues and it says, Sheli, Shelcha, Veshelcha, Shelcha. Chasid. A person that says, Mine is yours, and yours is mine. That's the, I'm sorry, that's the unlearned person. The one that says, Mine is yours, and yours is yours. This is a pious person. This is an overly pious, this is a tzaddik, this is a chasid. This is someone that's doing above and beyond what he needs to do. Call a chasid. If you remember, I told you that the real meaning of chasid is someone that does above and beyond the law. If, let's say, Hashem says Shabbat is 25 hours, he keeps Shabbat for 26. If Hashem says that uh, he has to be, uh, you know, modest, but men, technically, according to Allah, are allowed to wear T-shirts. They're allowed to wear T-shirts. A chasid does not wear T-shirts. Chasid covers himself all the time. To such an extent that if he's a real serious chassid, he cover himself even in his own house and never walk around with no shirt on and, and so on, like, which is something that men are very comfortable doing. A chassid will never go into a public pool. Never. In fact, a chassid most likely won't go into a pool, period. Simply because he does not want other people to see him naked. does not want other people to see even if the other people are men. Again, this level of chasidut, this is, it's allowed. If you're going to a pool where there's only men there, you're allowed to go. You're allowed. If it's men and women, then it's better off you die than go there. No, that's the Gilu Ariot it's called. It's called Gilu Ariot. There's three cardinal sins in Judaism. One of them is if somebody tells you, go murder somebody or I kill you, thank you very much, I'll die. Not allowed to kill somebody else. Why? Your blood is not more valuable than theirs. So that's the first cardinal sin, meaning die but not sin. The second one is Avodah Zarah. Avodah Zarah means that if somebody tells you go and clap for somebody giving a speech about J.C. Penny, go and uh, pray to J.C. Penny, go pray to Buddha. You say no, thank you. Just shoot me here. It's a mitzvah. You die in Kiddush Hashem. You have Olam Abba, even if you weren't the biggest tzaddik in the world. You done in Kiddush Hashem. The last one, Rabotai, is Gilu Arayot. Gilu Arayot is immorality. Immorality is in many forms. There's many details to it. It's not just incest. It's not just men and beasts. It's also a man with a woman that he's not allowed to be with, even if that woman is his wife. So how could it be that he's not allowed to be with his wife? If his wife is Nida. If his wife is Nida, and his wife tells him, be with me or I'll kill you. He says, kill me. Not allowed to be with his wife if she's Nida, even if she threatens to kill him. Which is opposite of what this Dror Kasuto said. Some guy that calls himself a rabbi with long payers. He said that if your wife doesn't want to go to the mikveh, it's okay, you can still be with her. It's Arek Ve'al Better off die than be with your wife if she's nida. 
Same concept goes to going to a mixed beach, mixed pool, mixed dancing party, weddings, bar mitzvahs. They do mixed dancing. This is all considered branches of Gilu Ariot. It's better that a person die than do any of this. So now if anybody says, yeah, but I know some rabbis that had those parties. Okay, there's a place for them in Gainom too. I don't make the rules of Botai. All of this is an alakha. All of this you could find sources in the Torah. The Shukhan Aruch, Gemara, everywhere. It's not Chumrah. I'm not, I don't teach Chumrah. I don't teach stringency. This is all basic level Judaism. The fact that there's many sinners is not my problem. It's not my fault. I didn't do it. I'm trying to do Tshuva. I'm going to teach you what you have to do. You can do what you want. The point is in today's world, people think that you learn religion by looking at rabbis. You cannot, look, you cannot look at anyone and think that that's the right thing. Because many times it's not. They have a Yetzirah just like you do. You're not allowed to learn by other people's actions. It's good to learn from tzaddikim. If you have a rabbi that's a tzaddik, it's good to be next to him and see how he acts. But that's not the way you learn halacha. That's how you learn ashkafa. You learn how to behave and do certain things. But halacha you learn from books. We have books, Baruch Hashem. We have an endless amount of books. Halacha, poskim, we have shulchan aruch, and so on and so forth. It tells us what we're allowed to do and what we're allowed to, allowed to do. The things I'm teaching you right now are even before this uh, basic stuff. This is the basic of the basic. It's the three cardinal sins. Everybody knows what it is. As a matter of fact, this is part of the 13 principles of faith. The fact that you have reward and punishment, this is what it means. There's a reward for doing the good thing. There's a punishment for not. So, the chassid is someone that does above and beyond. Above and beyond. Now, when it comes to materialism, this is the big test. With modesty for men, most of the time it's not a problem. Most men don't walk around like cows. They put clothes on. So usually modesty is not such a big problem, at least for the most part. And even the ones that like to wear less clothes, like t-shirts and shorts, it's technically still allowed. It's allowed. They're not chassidim, but it's allowed. There are plenty of really wonderful people, religious people, that perhaps are not the most modest uh, as far as, uh, you know, they wear shorts and t-shirts and there's nothing wrong with it. Just... It's less modest. But it's not a sin like it would be for a woman. Because a man does not attract women that way. He just wasn't created that way. But the real test of chasidut is not your exterior. The Gemara in Masichet Ta'anit uses a verse from the prophet Ezekiel telling the people, Hashem doesn't want you to rip your clothes and fast. He's not interested in you ripping your clothes. He's not interested in you fasting. He's only interested in you ripping your hearts and doing tshuva. From here we learn that your clothing are only a part of tshuva, not the main thing. If, you're, if you think that your exterior is what makes you religious, you have the wrong address. So, yes, we're supposed to be modest. Yes, we're supposed to look a certain way. We can't look like the goyim and so on. But that's not the end of the job. It's just part of it. The bigger test is our midot. The bigger test is our character traits. What we have inside. 
And in today's world, when money has turned into Abu Dazara, this, in my opinion, is the biggest test of all. How are you with material? How are you with money? If you're cheap, you have a long way to go with in regards to Abu Dazara, in regards to Tshuva. Because being cheap is the opposite of Hashem. Hashem is the most generous. He only gives and never takes. Being cheap means that you only take and never give. It's the opposite of Hashem. And it specifically says in the Gemara, Hashem hates people like this. So if we're fortunate enough to be a chassid in this regards, that means that we not only have done tshuva, but we have a high level of tshuva. If you're a generous person, you could become literally a chassid, a real chassid, not just one with good clothing. So the term chassid denotes someone who does more than what is required by the letter of the law. Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair, the Gemara says, was such a high-level chassid that he never even took a piece of bread from his own father the minute he was able to think for himself. The minute he was able to have, like, like he had a, his mind was clear, he understood what was, you know, that he was a person, and he was able to take care of himself, he decided, I'm never taking anything from my father again. Not because he, doesn't, he loves his father, kibudavayin. He says, I only want to give. I don't want to be a burden to my father. Now, someone asked me today, actually, or yesterday, good question. Especially for this generation of winners. The millennials, they call them, I think it is. Millennials. And then there's another one after them. What's the other one? They were after millennials. There's no, there's, they call this generation a funny name. The reason why is because they, they want to... They they're trying to be politically correct and call them a nice name that no one really understands. But it's, in so many words, it's a generation where no one wants to work, everyone wants everything handed to them. Everyone wants to be a winner in every contest, even if they're 80th place. There's uh, participation trophies. You participate, you get a trophy, even though you're a loser and you got last place, you still get a trophy. So someone asked me a wonderful question. What is the Torah's opinion of supporting your own children. What is your obligation? When is it? When are you obligated to support your children financially? Up to what age? Anyone wants to volunteer an answer? Finish the point. There's two opinions. There's two opinions. Uh, some of the halachot that we have are very clear. Some of them, there's mixed opinion. Some more stringent, some more lenient. But nonetheless, everybody has the same point. The point here is that as far as supporting your children according to Allah, the stringent opinion says up to six years old. Once the kid is six years old, let him take care of himself. The lenient opinion, the lenient opinion is eight. The lenient. Once he's eight years old, you're on your own, buddy. Eight years old. Now, since we know that times have changed, the world at large is different. The generation is different. The people are different. We're much weaker. It's much more difficult for someone to earn a living 
using the tools of yesterday as it was in the past. You know, in the past, every little kid can make money by going to the guy that's selling apples and just uh, helping him out. By going to the market and putting stuff in boxes. By going, you know, every kid could do something. Today, if you tell a kid in his own house to pick up an apple, he looks at you like, what? Apple? You want me to pick it up? Can't she pick it up? Can't you pick it up? Pick it up! So, today's world is different. So, a person, the talakha doesn't change. Eight years old is still it. It doesn't say, oh, because the kids today are, are, are losers in comparison to a previous generation, it's not relevant. No, it's still the same thing. It's still eight years old. But supporting them after that age is still something we have to do because, not because of the halakha changes, but rather because they can't support themselves. They can't make money for themselves. So you're not allowed to just let somebody die, especially if it's a Jew, especially if it's someone related to you. You're not allowed to stand over somebody's blood. But in this case, it's not the original halakha. It's not the original halakha of you being supporting your children. What is this? It's the cup. It's considered giving tzedakah. That's the only thing that changes. Same halakha, nothing changed. But now, after eight years old, until uh, whoever knows, it's tzedakah. But even this, Rabotai, parents need to know that if they give their children too much, they're destroying them. Parents that buy their kids brand new cars and new everything and make them enjoy their wealth are developing little Hitlers nine out of ten times. I have an old friend. I haven't seen him in many years, but he grew up in a very, very rich household. His father was rich. His mom was rich. Everybody was rich. And this kid, for fun, he would crash his Ferraris and Porsches. So now this would seem like, okay, so he's crashing a quarter million dollar car every month. What's the big deal? What's the worst that could happen other than death? If he didn't die and he lived to tell the story, what's so bad about it? What's so bad is that eventually his parents ran out of money. And he didn't know how to deal with it. Because he was used to the high life that they were providing him. Thinking, like they were thinking, that this will continue forever. I'll never have to work for my money. I'll never have to earn it. I'll never have to pay for the consequences of my actions. I'll never have to be concerned about anything. I can just pretty much make the rules. So when the world hit him in the face when he was around 30 years old, 31 years old, he didn't know what to do. Started doing drugs, started much more heavy, started doing all types of mistakes you could possibly imagine and literally turned into the biggest loser in the world. It took him years to get out of it and then turn back into it. And his whole life was a mess because of it. Why? His parents gave him everything. And I can tell you from having kids, you want to give your kid everything. But Torah says you're not allowed. Why? You're destroying them. You're destroying them. You're not allowed to give your kids everything. Everything has to be with certain restrictions, certain price. It has to be a limit. I even know my own daughter would want to give him. You see, I have Baruch Hashem, this little cute thing. You want to give him, okay, you want the house, here's the house. You want the car, here's the car. You want to give him everything. It's the cutest little thing in the world. But the reality is, to them, right now, when they're little, it's all the same. You give them the house, you give them a car, you give them a little sticker, it's the same thing. All they want is they want something, they want attention. They just want attention. So, if you want to pacify your kid because they're crying or whatever it is, don't make it such a big present. Take a pencil and give it to them. 
Even if the pencil is from 30 years ago, trust me, they'll be fine. Take a sticker. Sticker that costs less than a penny, give it to them, they'll be fine. You have to make every... Parents think that the kids want something new all the time, and that new means that they have to go buy it, and it's expensive, and then they have to go to the stores, or they have to order on the internet. No. Give them something tiny. For example, my wife, God bless her, she realized this, and she's like, oh, you know what, instead of buying, let's say, uh, a box of markers, now you, can do, you have two choices. You could just give the box of markers to the kid, and she'll use it and enjoy it, and, I don't know, an hour later, she wants something else. Or you give her one marker at a time. And you could divide this box of markers for a week, two weeks. And for her, it's the greatest thing in the world. Every day she has something new. That's the present. She doesn't see her, her Abba. Half the, you know, 90% of the week. That's the present. How do you compensate for it? How do you give a marker every day? But you see, Rabotai, it's a, you have to be smart with it. I know kids want and they don't understand why you're not giving and so on and so forth. But this different shitot, you have to use your brain. You can't just give them everything you want. Because you're going to destroy them. So the, in this regard, when you're a parent, you can't be a chassid. You can't overgive. You have to give with control. So, Shmuel, the prophet, had this level of, uh, of chasidut. We see in uh, Samuel 1, Shmuel 1, chapter 7, verse 17, and also in the Gemara Masechet Brachot 11a, where he would bring everything, whatever household items he needed, wherever he traveled. Anywhere he went, he bring everything, his whole house with him. Why? Doesn't want any presents from anyone, doesn't want any gifts from anyone, doesn't want any favors from anyone. All he wants to do is give everyone. Whatever is yours, enjoy it. I'll share mine. Yeah, but you're the visitor, you're the prophet, you're Kodesh Kodeshim. Gemara says you're as great as Moshe Rabbeinu and Aaron are together. Perfect, I can give then. I can give. So this is the ideal situation. Anyone that's ever had any money or anything of value to uh, to talk about knows that when you have a lot, you only realize how much you have once you start giving it away. If you have and you don't share, you don't feel what you have. The news can talk about you from here till next week. Oh, he just hit the Forbes 500. He's this, he's that. Wow, he's amazing. To you, it's like white noise. You know what white noise is? It's like background music, but you don't really realize what's happening. It's just, just you know, it's drowning out the voices of everything else that's actually really happening. All the things that people say about you, to you eventually it becomes white noise. It's meaningless. You actually get to a point where you start hating compliments. It's uncomfortable. Why are you talking about me? What makes you think this is? It's very uncomfortable. And you don't realize what you actually have. They think you have a lot. You don't really view it as a lot. I'm assuming you're a normal person. Some people don't have anything and they pretend like they have a lot. When do you realize that you have a lot? When you start sharing it with people. 
when you see that giving a guy $5,000 just changed his whole life. Wow, I can pay rent. I can send my kid to school. The guy starts praying and crying in front of you. It's like, wow, this is great. Five, that's what $5,000 does to people? I wish it had that effect on me. You start realizing, I have a lot of $5,000. Let me just start giving more people. When you see giving a homeless person a hundred bucks, it's like, wow, thank you, sir. God bless you. It's start giving you blessings like it's a uh, Baba Sali. Sir, I only gave you a hundred bucks. Not like the end of the world. But the guy is giving you blessings. You hear the greatest thing in the world. Why? Because in reality, you just changed his week. You could have changed his life. Maybe he lost hope. Maybe he wanted to kill himself because of the circumstances that he's in. And he's thinking, I don't know what I'm going to do. I need this, I need this. And all of a sudden, you surprise them. Because he's thinking, at best case, this guy's going to give me $5. The best case scenario. And that's maybe once a day. But once you give him $100, it's like, he doesn't, it's like he's a, he's a, he thinks it's fake. It's like, wow, it's real. He just gave me $100. It changed my whole week. I could sleep. I, I'm telling you, I did this a few times. And the, the stories these people tell you, it's amazing. Wow. Now I can sleep in a, in, in a motel this week. I don't have to sleep in a shop. And I got to tell you, all, they, all the plans they had are amazing. Like they had, it's like somebody that, you know, people like talk about, what, what would you do if you won the lotto? And they have all these plans. I would buy the car and the house and the plane, all this nonsense that people want. Now the homeless guy, he has those same dreams, but much smaller. He's not thinking, what would I do if I have a hundred million? That's not even a thought for him. For him... What would I do if I have a hundred bucks? What would I do if I have five hundred dollars? What would I do? Wow, a thousand dollars! He's thinking, "Wow, I can, I can take a shower." I can. So when you help such people, it's extraordinary, and you, it actually helps you realize how rich you really are, even if you're not rich according to the standards that we think rich is. You don't need to be rich, like the tel- television tells you, in order to be really rich. To be rich, first and foremost, you need to be happy with your share. How do you get to a point of being happy with your share? Start giving it away. Because only after you start giving, you're actually going to start noticing how much it really is. Because when you work, especially today when everything is digital, there's very little things that touch your hand. Money doesn't even touch your hand 9 out of 10 times. It all goes into a bank. It's all digital. It's all on a computer. You don't even feel it. I remember there was one time in my career, in May of 2006, just six months before my surgery, the first one, I made $1.6 million in a month. And to me, that day, whatever, the, the month was finished, or whatever it was, I made a, a ton of money in one month, and it was the most I ever made in one month. But I continued to work. It was Nothing changed for me. And one of the people in my office said, well, well why don't you go party? Why don't you go on vacation? I'm like, yeah, eventually I'll do something. I'm not really sure what I'll do, but I'm really busy now. Can you, you need anything? You need anything? I'm really busy. You need, he goes, did you just make a ton of money? I said, yes. Do you need anything? It's like, why don't you party? Why don't you? I'm like, I don't know. Like, it, doesn't, it, didn't, it doesn't move you. It's like, okay, after a while, it becomes meaningless. Why? It's digital. It's on a screen. Okay, so now I have that extra 1.6 to move to this other account to buy this other stuff that's also digital. And you're going to buy some more stocks or another property or whatever. It's, what else are you going to do? It's not like you're going to go to the bank and say, like, hey, sir, yeah, can you please just give me $5 million in dollar bills, please, or in coins? I, I, you know, I'm going to put it in my car. 
Like, what are you going to do with it? Even if you are rich, what are you going to do with all this money? Only the, these idiots that pretend like they, uh, they, are, you know, they have real lives, you know, take a lot of money, they put it in duffel bags, and they put it on YouTube, but they have all this money. The reality, like real normal people don't do such things. When you're not fiending for attention, you don't do that. What do you do? It's in a bank. And the bank himself doesn't even have it. It's digital for them too. It's called fractionalization. The really, the bank is allowed to lend... Oh, forget it. Well, different lesson. So, uh, the point is, guys, is that when I would actually have to go, for example, if I wanted to go away or do something and I would want a lot of cash, I would have to make an appointment. Why? Because if I want, let's say, $100,000 in cash, 9 out of 10 banks don't have it. They simply don't have it. They don't have the money. They don't, they don't just, it's not like the safe. You see, oh yeah, yeah, I'm going to go to the safe. The safe doesn't have anything. The safe has safety deposit boxes that belong to people. It's not the bank's money. The bank doesn't have much. The bank has a few dollars, in, you know, maybe $30,000, $40,000 in the drawers. It doesn't have millions of dollars in every bank. It's all digital. So if you wanted to, if you're a rich person, you want to, let's say, I don't know, you want to get, I don't know, a quarter million dollars. You have to call the bank a, a day or two before. Tell them, listen, I'm going to come pick up on Tuesday. I need $250,000 in cash, and I wanted it in uh, $20 bills, $100 bills. Okay, so they'll arrange for you, no problem. They'll get one of those trucks to bring the money, and you'll have it ready for you, no problem. But if you just showed up to your guy, like, hey, listen, I have $20 million in my account on the computer, so I don't want the whole $20 million. I just want $1 million. It's like, okay, sir, it's a nice request. We appreciate your business, but you're going to have to come back in three days from now. Why? We don't have, we don't carry a million dollars in the bank. So, the thing is, though, is that the people that are normal, back to our real subject, the people that actually have all of this material, they don't feel it. They simply don't feel it because it's all digital. And after a while, you become numb to it. It's like, okay, so there's more on top of the more that I don't need anyway. Like, how many houses can you live in? How many cars can you drive? How many watches can you wear? Assuming you're a normal person, not one of these crazy people that wears 10 watches because you want to show everybody off that you have 10 watches. How many cars can you drive at once? How many houses can you actually live in at once? Okay, you could own 100,000 houses, but you can't live in more than one. All this material eventually loses its value. And what you end up doing is that you end up having all this extra property for other people to enjoy. And I remember the property we had in New York, literally more times than not, other people enjoy the property more than us. It's a multi-million dollar apartment that, you know, I was sleeping in once in a while. So most of the time I'd sleep in there. Anytime I would go away, I'd always have somebody there either watching the dog or just sitting there because... We're very uh, careless about you know anybody coming in, coming out. It didn't make a difference. So if you want to enjoy the apartment, enjoy it. And literally, more people had party in that house that had nothing to do with me. But that's how it is with people that have a lot of money. It's like they have these houses in different islands, and other people live there. And they come visit once or twice a year. So you don't really feel it. You know you own it, but it doesn't mean anything. When do you feel it? When you start giving it to other people. Meaning, part of the reason you bought this other house is because you know that the people that work in that house to keep it up, they're going to benefit. 
Part of the reason of why you donated to the school is because you know people are going to go to that school and get an education and so on and so forth. And maybe they're going to put your name on the school. The point is that you start benefiting, you start enjoying your, your, your stuff by putting it in other people's hands. So there's good and bad in that. Even that there is good and bad in. But the point is, Rabotai, is that you never felt like you had anything of value until you started sharing it with other people. Now, at the same token, the Gemara Maseret Ketubot, page 67b, teaches that even charity, even when it comes to tzedakah, you're not allowed to spend more than 20% of your assets. Even to give, you're not allowed to give more than 20% of your money in most circumstances, because it's forbidden to take this specific principle of what mine is yours and yours is yours to the extreme. Meaning, you're allowed to be generous. You're allowed to not take anything from anyone. But not to the point where you're making yourself poor. There are certain exceptions to the case if the person is really, really, truly something extraordinary. But in most cases, there are rules in our Torah that separate us from all of the religions in the world. We are the only religion in the world that actually has a rule that forbids you from giving too much. Now I have a friend that lives in India, and his father used to be a multi-millionaire, like filthy rich. His father now is nearly broke. Why? He gave everything to some idol. Because the idol told him that uh, everything's going to be okay, and he's, if you give you if you, if you give me everything, then uh, I'll give you much more back. And guess what? It didn't work. It didn't work. In Judaism, such things are not allowed. You're not allowed to give anybody everything. This is one of the best, in my opinion, this is one of the best proofs of the divinity of the Art Torah. Because every other religion you see, every religion has the same mitzvah. Mitzvah of tzedakah, they call it charity, they call it uh, tzedakah, they call it different names, different, uh, you know, religions call their their thing, different. bottom line is, want money. Everybody has the money mitzvah. But how do you distinguish that this is a mitzvah from God, and this is a mitzvah from the guy's interests, his desires, and his likes, and everything that he wants, when there's rules. If you tell me that to give you everything... That's the mitzvah. I know there's at least a 90% chance it's not, <laughs> it's not a mitzvah. Why? Anybody could tell me, even without religion, they would tell me, give me everything. But once you tell me there's rules and you're actually not allowed to give me everything, you're not allowed to give the, uh, the uh, religion everything, you have to maintain yourself, you have to preserve yourself, you're not allowed to put yourself in harm's way and so on and so forth. This is a tool to live not to commit suicide. Then I realize, okay, there's something else to this. There's something else to this, to this, to this mitzvah. This could be from God. So, the point is, Abutai, is that when it comes to fulfilling the mitzvot, our Torah has rules for everything. Even for the things that you wouldn't think they have rules. 
There was one time a um, priest that uh, needed a favor from a uh, rabbi. And he told him, listen, I need a favor. I need you to uh, come to my church and uh, take over for next month. So the rabbi said, listen, I'm a rabbi, I can't be in there. He goes, listen, the deal is, all the money that you get, you keep. Rabbi became reformed for a little while. So he says to him, okay, I'll do it under one condition. What's the condition? Don't ask me how much I made. Okay, priest doesn't care. Sure, just watch my uh, place. This is what you do. Right, left, up, down. Do what you got to do over here. I'll see you in a month. A month later, the priest comes back. He sees the rabbi. He's happy. He's got a grin on his face. How are you? How was your vacation? Good, good, good. So, how much did you make? He goes, oh, that was the deal. He told you don't ask. He goes, no, no, come on. How much did you make? How much did you make? I told me not ask. How much did you make? No. He said, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you. Because no, just tell me. $25 million. Blurred it out. $25 million. In a month, the, the, the priest almost like had a heart attack. Because in a month, you make $25 million. The whole year, in five years, we don't make $25 million. How did you do so well? How did you do it? Because if you want to know, give me a million bucks. <laughs> For the priest, it was worth it. He, okay, here. Wire the money. PayPal. Gives them the money. Okay, knew how'd you make it? He goes, listen, you have a big congregation. And every day, I'm supposed to sit in some room. And the people come and they tell me that they murdered or they stole or they cheated or they did something. And he told me this whole thing is, tell them to do a few Hail Marys, a few, uh, a few uh, home runs, a few whatever it is, the rules that you guys have over there. Give some money and go away. He goes, yeah, so? So I figured the first guy came and he said, listen... I just uh, slapped my wife up a couple of times and I feel bad about it. Uh, what should I do? I said, all right, listen. You're usually, for this type of sin, you have to pay a thousand bucks to the church. But between us, is this the last time you're going to slap your wife? The guy looked at me and goes, you know what? You're right. I said, you're probably going to slap her at least another 10, 20 times this year. And next year, it may get worse. And next year after that, it may get worse. Let's just do a deal. Instead of you paying... A thousand bucks a month. Let's just do a deal. I'll give you a discount. Five thousand dollars for each year for the next year. Give me fifty thousand dollars. The guy says, Good deal. So give me fifty thousand dollars. And then so well, the guy stole. So I told him, Oh, so you stole. It's the last time you're gonna steal. You're probably gonna steal again next month, and the month after that, and the month after that. Just give me ahead of time. And that's what I do with everybody else. Instead of them paying for the one sin, we just took up front. This is a joke. But it's also some musa. The Musar is Rabotai is that in the falsehood of Christianity, Catholicism, New Testament, the Quran, Buddhism, all of these stupid man-made religions, you see that the clear interest is biased. The interest of all of them is to take as much as they possibly can without a single concern about what happens to the people that are giving. The Torah, on the other hand, Rabotai worries about its members. We want you to live. Even if you don't give a single penny. We care less if you give a single penny. As a matter of fact, if your rabbi cares about the money you give him, he's not your rabbi, he's your employee. That's why the Mishnah in Avod says, Make yourself a rabbi and buy yourself a friend. 
Because if you buy the rabbi, he's not your rabbi anymore. He's your employee. He'll just do whatever you want. He'll jump to your tune. You tell him it's allowed, he'll tell, okay, I'll make sure it's allowed. You tell him I want to drive on Shabbat, okay, I'll just show you where to park. If your rabbi is depending on your money and is to that extent where he's just going to bend the rules for you because you're giving him a lot of money, he's not your rabbi, he's an employee. And that's what the Chida said, that Judaism and the life of Torah declared bankruptcy when the rabbis started accepting money from rich people. In the old days, the rabbis used to own the synagogues. No one can tell them what to do. There was no board. There was no election. There was no, uh, we're going to hire a different rabbi. If you're the rabbi, it's your place. It's your place. No one can tell you what to do. You don't like it, leave. As a matter of fact, they had a jail in many entrances of the old shuls where anyone that went against the rabbi, they would put him in that jail. Why in the front? Why in the entrance? So all of the members that go in, on the way in and on the way out from the, uh, from the shul, after they go to pray or leave to pray, they would spit on the person. Why? He went against the rabbi. And that's when the rabbis owned the shop. As soon as the rabbis didn't own it, Shem what happened to us? So to finalize it, the last part, Rabotai, is Shelcha Sheli Vesheli Sheli. That's a Rasha. A person that says, yours is mine, and mine is mine, that's a wicked person. A person that thinks that everything is theirs is a self-centered person that's only concerned with what he can take from life. Meaning he looks at everybody else an opportunity. Okay, he, yeah, he, he got $500 to give me. Yeah, he's got 200 He can give me a ride. He makes good sandwiches. Yeah, she, she's good. She'll, she'll come over and clean my house. Yeah, she, uh, the, he starts looking at people as opportunities. Now, I won't lie to you. When I was in the business world, this was the way I was supposed to look at people. Because I only dealt with rich people. I couldn't deal with just anybody. So it got to a point where literally, when walk, you know, I, I lived in Manhattan, I worked in Manhattan, so you would literally get to a point, or at least I did, that I would see certain people and say, oh, he's a lead, he's not a lead, he's a lead, he's not a lead. I would know just literally by just who you are and what you, where you're from, if you're a prospect or not. Now prospect meaning, not that you, were, you had a pulse. Prospect meaning that you had enough money for me to deal with you. You were rich enough for me to deal with you. Now in business, that's one thing. The problem is, you're supposed to do it. You're supposed to obviously identify who your prospects are if you're not going to waste your time. You can't just uh, call every single person that has a pulse and uh, force them to be a customer. If you're sending, uh, you know, selling uh, dental supplies, you can't call some uh, old woman that doesn't have any teeth. You have to identify who your customer is. So the point is, is that in business, it's not so bad. You're actually supposed to do it. The problem is if you do it in your real life. The problem is if you look at your friends and family as bank accounts, as favor accounts. And everyone, unless they do something for you, you don't do anything for them. That's a rasha. This is a person who only wants to benefit from others, even at their expense or to their detriment. But he cannot fathom doing something for someone else even if it costs him nothing. There are some people, Rabotai, that 
that are so greedy with their own money, they're so into their own possessions, that even to do something that doesn't cost anything, it's free, they won't do. Like if you don't listen, can I just borrow your yard? You know, we're going to have a party, your kids are going to have parties, there's going to be more people, can we just share a yard, can we just let the kids play in your yard also? Nothing's going to change in your yard. If anything happens, I'll pay for it. No, 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 I want my yard. Are you using it? No. Can I borrow your barbecue? You're not, you know, you're, you're away. Can I borrow your barbecue? Can I make a barbecue? Nothing is going to happen to your barbecue. Can I borrow it? No, no, no. Can I borrow your ladder? No, no, no. To ask you for a ladder and for a hammer and for a barbecue and for a ride and for everything? They don't think about it twice. They ask right away. But you ask them for a certain thing? Immediately, no, no, no. Can't do it. Can't do it. These are the poorest people on the planet. When what they have where, where a person is so poor, all they have is money. That's a real poor person. All they have is their own possessions, and they're so connected to it, they can't stand sharing it, even if it means nothing to them. Like there are certain people that literally are so cheap with their possessions, they're not even willing to, to, to share their signature. I'm serious. Signature. Let's say, for example, you have sometimes somebody wants to, let's say, buy a house. Or buy or rent or lease a car, or rent a car. You tell them, listen, do me a favor. Listen, I I want to want to lease a car. I want to buy a house. I want something. You have a house. You're not buying anything. Can can you co-sign for me? Technically, if the if you actually are a responsible person and you have a good relationship, you could trust each other. What is it costing the person? Now, if he doesn't know you, it's a different story. If he doesn't, if he knows you are going above and beyond, it's a different story. But I mean. The fact is that you have it. It's just that you have credit problems or uh, you're, most of the money you have is in cash because of the type of business that you're in, so you can't prove your income, meaning it's for logistical reasons. It's not because you can't afford it. And you want to give them the money, you want to give them the collateral, whatever it is that you need to do. You're willing to do everything that's necessary, but for them it's simply a signature. No, 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 I don't want to get into any problems. I remember when... Uh, we were trying to salvage some of the things we had. I uh, was trying to save the apartment, this fancy schmancy apartment that I had. So there were some people that called themselves my friends. And a few of these friends owed me a lot of money. But of course, they never had any money to pay back. The only ones that didn't owe me any money is the ones that had a lot more money than me. So there's one particular guy that has no less than $100 million, probably more. He makes about $130, $140 million a year in his business. So profit out of that is maybe $25, $30 million. So he has a good amount of money. So I told him that I need to save this apartment. And I did business with him. So I know exactly that he has the money and he's liquid as, uh, as water. I told him, listen, I need to save this apartment. We have an issue. Da, 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 blah, blah. I need to borrow... I don't know, I think it was like $150,000 or $200,000, but I'm willing to give you the entire apartment as collateral, meaning that if I mess up, you not only benefit out of it, not only do you benefit out of it, you make a ton of money, you make 10 times your money. So in essence, you should pray for me to mess up. What was the response? Nah, you know, I'm not really into that right now. I'm not, I'm not, it's going to bother with my other plans. And this I heard from no less than a half a dozen people that called themselves my friends. Each person had more money than they can count. The first time in their life 
that I was the one that asked for help, all of a sudden nobody has any money, all of a sudden I'm disturbing plans, and that was the first and last time I ever asked for any help from anybody. The point is, Rabotai, is that this, I thought at the time, was something personal. When you learn Torah, you realize it has nothing to do with personal. It's all Ritzon Hashem. It's all from Hashem. If Hashem wanted me to have anything, I would have it with or without them. The reality is that they are the ones we should feel bad for. Why? Because somebody can get to such a point that Hashem Himself is saying, this person is a Rasha simply because of how He treats His money. He treats it like it's Avodah Zarah. He treats his possessions like it's an idol itself and he's not even willing to share them even if it doesn't change anything for him. It's like going to somebody that has a, a box full of pens. You tell him, can I borrow a pen? No, no, no. It's my pen. I understand it's your pen. I'm just borrowing it. I'm going to give it back. No, no, it's mine. It's mine. I understand it's yours. But can I just borrow it for two seconds? I'm just going to write my name. No, I can't do it. There are people like this in the world. A lot of them. This potential for wickedness exists in one who, who is obsessed with money. He will eventually come to become a thief, says the Magin Avot. The people that are obsessed with money eventually end up becoming thieves. Why thieves? Because they're so obsessed with their possessions that they're literally not willing to share with anybody else. And eventually they start feeling they don't have enough. And they can't make it fast enough. And they, since they don't have any value for anybody else's stuff, they don't have any value for anybody else's needs, they start taking what doesn't belong to them. Sometimes it's the contractor's money. Sometimes it's the employee's money. Sometimes it's the government's money. You know how many times there's stories out there that you see and you hear of people that have millions of dollars but still collect welfare checks? Welfare, they get welfare in the mail, but the guy has five, ten million dollar net worth. This is the biggest chilul Hashem in the world. When you have people in the Jewish community that have plenty of money, but they're collecting welfare checks because they can. Because they're fooling the system. This is 100% thievery. It's stealing. You're not allowed to use such things if you don't need them. So here, Abotai, the Torah teaches us that being a chassid, or being a rasha, or being an ignorant, or being an average person, has very little to do with your exterior look. Very little to do with your suit, or your jacket, or your beard, or your hat. It has to do more with your insides. Tomorrow, Bezat Hashem, we're going to go into the midah of kas, the midah of anger. It's probably another one of those shiurim is going to be several. But here we see that if we could do true for the entire series, 107 lectures, we could just learn this Mishnah over and over again the whole year and actually do this, you already started doing some serious chupa. Because materialism is such a significant part of our life that if we can't do chupa for it, we really can't do chupa, period. Any questions? You usually have about 30 questions as soon as the camera is off. So you could ask now while the camera is on. I can tell you. Huh? Oh, you have one.
כן. To worship Avodah I mean, it was Chilul Hashem, and Chilul Hashem is something that even Yom Kippur cannot help you with. Uh, so a Jewish person saying Kol HaKavod to a, someone giving a speech about idol, idol worship, or saying we should all say thank you to my idol, uh, that's not only Chilul Hashem that the person is going to have to pay for, but it could, in some uh, in some regards, be a form of avodah not complete, but a form of avodah uh, The point is, is that it's a it's a it's a horrible thing to do, and it just shows how clueless we are, and how close we are to completely losing our own identity because we think that the savior is some person from this world, some person that's not even part of us, some person that has completely different beliefs. That's when we have made the material our life. Material doesn't just mean money. Material also means the this world in general, whether it's political power or uh, or any or any of that. Uh, it's not just money. So it's unfortunate that we're in this world because we have a whole sect of Jews that think it's perfectly okay to cheer and even do business and work with the Christian missionaries. Now, doing business. And selling to Christians, as far as if you're selling clothes or your diamonds or whatever it is that you sell, there's nothing, there's no problem. As long as you know that they're not going to use specifically what you're doing with, for idolatry. But to even be friendly with them, it's not a problem. I have plenty of people that are Christians that I'm very friendly with. Some of my old friends are very, you know, very Christian and very friendly. It's no problem. The problem is when you start losing yourself and the line that separates the two becomes unclear. Where all of a sudden they're invited to your Hanukkah parties. All of a sudden you attend their Christmas parties. All of a sudden you go to their wedding in the church. All of a sudden when they give you a, uh, you know, an insight about what J.C. Penny says, you're in, you enjoy it. And the Gemara in Masechet Avodah Zarah says that Rabbi Eliezer ben Horkinos, the rabbi of Rabbi Akiva, got, nearly got a death penalty from Hashem Barach for enjoying the idea of a Christian. Even though he didn't do it intentionally, he did it accidentally. And he thought it only in his heart. He almost got a death penalty from Hashem. So the point is, is that you have to know that there has to be a separation. There has to be a separation now. We're not saying that you have to be anti-Trump or anti-US and start uh, burning things. We're not saying that. We're not crazy people. You have to have some akaratatov. You have to be grateful for the freedom that uh, you're provided in this country, for the luxury that you have as far as finances and so on. There's no problem with that. But there's a time and a place to do that. To let them give a speech in our shul is absolutely forbidden. To let a Christian, missionary or otherwise, give a speech in any synagogue is absolutely forbidden. Because it's, it's insanity. It's not only forbidden, it's insanity. To say kol kavod to a speech by a pastor that's advocating his Abu Dazara 
is not only stupid, it's forbidden. But unfortunately today we have such a confused bunch of leaders that you don't know who's a leader, you don't know who's an enemy, where we have literally some rabbis that are relatively popular that actually have organizations, like entire organizations, like APAC, like the Jewish Federation Network, or Federation something, uh, and several others like it, that are huge multi-million dollar organizations, if not more, that have a board of directors and leaders comprised of Christians. With an intention to missionize. Not Christians that, we're not talking about neutral Christians that just like, they like Jews, and yeah, the Jews are the chosen people, you do your thing, we'll do our thing, and uh, we'll meet at the end and see who's right. No! In order to be a real Christian, by the way, you have to be a missionary. There's no such thing as a Christian that's not a missionary. A Christian that's not a missionary is like a secular Jew. He's not a Christian. He's not a Christian. Without being a missionary, you're not a Christian. So if it's part of the New Testament, is to missionize. That is in their New Testament. So which means that if you let them speak in your shoe, you let them into your house and, and, and parties and so on and so forth, especially the religious uh, issues, it's only a matter of time before they missionize. Yeah. Yes, they do. Well, they don't have I don't know how you got that. I'm not really sure. I, 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 I'm not sure. No, 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 no. What I'm saying to you is that Christianity is 100% idolatry. But unfortunately, some rabbis are ultra, ultra lenient to the point where they're sinning and they are seeing not the Avodah Zarah coming from Christianity but rather the money that's coming from there. They're thinking that, yes, okay, if they're idol worshippers or they're not idol worshippers, you can call it Shituf and there's some opinions that say that it's not idolatry. The point is that we can use their money. For what? For Jewish causes. Yeah, for Jewish causes. Good luck with that. The reality is, right now what's happening in the world has never happened before. For the first time in history, Christians are pretending to be Jews. In the old generations, in the old generations, you knew who was a Christian, you knew who was a Jew. How? The Christian tried to kill the Jew all the time and succeeded many times. Today, it's hard to tell. Why? Because the Christian is your friend. He's very friendly. He comes to your house. He invites you to dinner. He'll give you money. They have actually a place they call a yeshiva that they opened in Brooklyn with people coming out with black and white, with beards, but there's only one difference. From the yeshiva that's across the street from it. The yeshiva that's across the street is Jewish people teaching the Torah. The yeshiva that's across the street from it, also black and white, also beards, where they teach New Testament. I don't know, messianic, no messianic, it's all idolatry. The point is, Rabotai, is that for the first time in history, they're pretending to be Jews. Many of them call themselves Jews, like messianic Jews, like you mentioned, and some otherwise. And for the first time in history, they're going into the religious neighborhoods, into Brooklyn, into Muncie, 
into Bnei Brak, into Yerushalayim. They put signs all over the walls. They spent $1.8 million just in the last two weeks putting signs all over billboards, all over Yerushalayim and Bnei Brak, the most religious neighborhoods in the entire world, about their Christianity. Why do they feel so strong? What? This is the first time it's ever happened. They had money last year also. They had money 10 years ago. They had money 100 years ago. They've always had money, so it's not the money. What is giving them so much comfort to walk in and pretty much do whatever they want? Us. We let them in. We let them into our parties. We let them into our government. We let them into our organizations. We let them into our shuls. We let them into everything. They said, oh, since we're already here, might as well run the show. This is the messianic uh, mission they have, they believe. They believe in order to bring their false messiah, their false god, they have to convert all the Jews. And only 144,000 Jews will remain. This is in their New Testament. It's not, a, it's not like uh, some believe, some don't believe. If you read the entire New Testament, this is what it says. Their job is to missionize. There is no such thing as a Christian that's religious that does not missionize. If he doesn't missionize, he's not a Christian. You're missing the point completely, son. You're missing the point completely. You're missing the point completely. You, you got the right amount of worry, but you're worried about the wrong thing. He's an Oveda Vodazara. He also still. Anyone that believes in J.C. Penny is a lighter worshiper. The point is, is that someone that is truly a religious Christian will missionize. It's just the reality of that religion. Forget about, put aside idolatry, not idolatry. It's not, that's not the point I'm trying to make. My point is, is their role is to make you not Jewish. That's their role. That's their ultimate mission in life. They'll pay any amount of money to make a religious Jew into a Christian. And that's unfortunately our vulnerability in the religious communities that have a lot of poor people. Just today, I know I got news, horrible news, from another Avrech, another Avrech in the Kolel that we tried to help, and the people that we tried to help, Shem he got to such level of poverty, he doesn't have enough money to buy fruits. Fruits, fruits for his kids, fruits. He's stopped buying fruits in the house. There's no fruits in the house. So the point is, Abutai, is that it's a, we have a lot of poverty in the Torah world, and uh, not because of Torah, but just because that's the tikkun of some of the people. Some of the people, tzaddikim, they have a tikkun. They can handle the tikkun. They can handle the test. And unfortunately, the ones that Hashem gave the ability to help don't always help, or at least not anywhere near as much. So, it's a it's a problem. When uh, Rabbi Akiva was asked by a heretic. Why does Hashem make them poor if He loves them so much? If He loves the poor people, why does He make them poor? So Rabbi Akiva answered them, He makes them poor because He loves them, but also because He loves us. Meaning, He knows that He loves them, He makes them poor, they're going to go through such kaparat avonot and still serve Him. They're going to go through such difficulty and still serve Him, they're guaranteed Gan Eden. But we, the ones that are not poor, they're not, we're not guaranteed Gan Eden. Why? Because we have it good. We have the ability to sin. So to save us from our own sins, He gives us the ability to give tzedakah. That's going to save us from Gainom. 
So the point is, is that there is an enormous amount of need in the world, especially in the religious communities. And, you know, it's just a, uh, it's sad to see that, you know, sometimes you try to have a cause, you try to have, try to raise money, you try to get to certain people, and uh, they just love their money too much. Ask them. That's what's written in the New Testament, yes. Well, you're trying to make you're trying to make sense out of craziness. It's like trying to uh, you know rationalize with a crazy person. You don't ask questions about crazy people. There's no there's no questions. You don't try to see oh what is the crazy person? What's his favorite color? He's crazy. He's gonna have a different one every week. It's not that, that you're asking the wrong question. You have to ask questions with substance, with real meaning, with significance, with you know so how they came up with their falsehood is irrelevant. The real reason of why Christianity exists is because people are weak and they don't want anyone to tell them what to do. They want to get out of jail free card. They want to be play Monopoly. You know, so they want to do whatever they want. They want to rape. They want to kill. They want to steal. They want to be dishonest. They want to do whatever they want. And to pay for all of the sins that we know of and don't know of, just give a little bit of money and make it all go bye-bye. They want Hitler to go to heaven. They want Osama bin Laden to go to heaven. Why? Because of some money that's meaningless in the real world. So the reality is the whole religion exists simply because people don't want to do what Hashem said. It's the whole religion. That's the same thing with every religion outside of Judaism. It's a get-out-of-jail-free card. Buddhism, if you do one thing, you go to uh, Buddha land, or wherever it is that you go after that, with that fat guy that's fat, uh, that's over- obese. Uh, if uh, in uh, in um, the Muslim people, many of them believe nonsense that if you kill a bunch of Jews, you go to heaven and you're going to marry seventy virgins. I mean, I, uh, it's just the stupidity just keeps on coming. The point is, Abutai, is that we don't need to make sense out of their stupidity. It's not our job. Our job is to understand that we have a priceless Torah. We have rules. We have to follow them. Number one, for our own benefit. Number two, for the benefit of the people around us. Now, it all starts with working on ourselves. Some people are too busy worrying about everybody else and not themselves. Now, even when you go on a plane, they tell you, listen, even if you have a baby in your hands and the baby can't take care of themselves, it doesn't make a difference. If there's problems, you put the mask on your face first. Then the baby. So we can't continue to focus on the Christians and on the Arabs and on... Uh, we have to focus on ourselves. We have to focus on the one that we see when we look in the mirror. Next question. There's no such thing as stealing business. Whatever Panasa Hashem wants you to have, you will have. Whatever Panasa Hashem wants him to have, he will have. There are ethical rules of uh, trying not to uh, open right in front of him if you have another choice. Try not to sell right next to him if you have another choice. So if, let's say, for example, if you're selling in a certain neighborhood, 
don't stand exactly where he stands, stand somewhere else. Don't steal his customers directly. Try to get your own customers. There's ethical rules and so on. But as far as business, you're allowed to do business. doesn't make a difference if there's one com- competitor or 50 million. There's no limitation. Same thing with anything. You're allowed to do business. It's just that, again, you have to be ethical. You have to be ethical. Some people, they'll open a store or a business, Dafka, on purpose, right next to their competition. Why? Because their main goal is to steal their competition's business and customers and employees and so on. Those people are criminals, spiritual criminals. Not allowed to do such things. Even actually, if you want to open a yeshiva, if you want to open a yeshiva, you want to open a kolel, you can't go directly to your uh, all the kolels in the neighborhood and just recruit all the best students everywhere and empty out everybody else from their best students because you're going to pay them a little bit more money or something like that. You can't do such things. To try to build your own. You can't just destroy the world around you because you want something good. You have to have ethics with everything. Uh, now, of course, it doesn't mean you can't do it. it. doesn't mean you can't do business. It doesn't mean you can't open a kolel. doesn't mean you can't open a yeshiva. You can, but there's a way to do things. There's a proper way to do things. Next. You usually have about 25 questions after the camera's off. Is it a question that has real meaning? Is it matter? Gonna, is it going to matter? They do not have an easy life. That's a misunderstanding of the Noahide laws. The Noahide laws are not seven laws. They're seven topics. There's seven uh, levels. Each one of the laws breaks down into several items, uh, maybe comprised of somewhere around 60 different mitzvot. It's not easier. In fact, it's more risky to be a Noahide than to be a Jew. And the reason why is because if a Jew sins... Different sins have different punishments. For example, if a Jew violates Shabbat, it's a de- death penalty and uh, in this world, and also it's losing their olam haba. But if a Jew steals, if a Jew steals money, and he gets caught, he has to pay double. He stole 100, he has to pay back 200. If he turns himself in, he just has to give the 100 that he stole. On the other hand, a non-Jew is not allowed to keep Shabbat. If he keeps Shabbat, he gets death penalty. And in regards to stealing or any of the other seven Noahide laws or any all of the ones that break out of it, let's say the 60 or so laws, if he violates any of them, not just stealing, any one of them, it's always a death penalty. There's no returning the money, there's no pay double, it's always a death penalty. So it's not necessarily easier to be a, a non-Jew it's not necessarily harder either. If you're a good non-Jew, if you're a good Noahide, it's easier. If you're a bad one, it's terrible. Because also when it comes to tshuva, the tshuva of a Jew is very different than the tshuva of a non-Jew. The tshuva of a Jew is a Jew can get to such a point where he can turn all of his previous sins into shogeg, into accidents, meaning he made sins, but now he did tshuva, so now all of the sins that he made are now accidental sins, which means that the punishment in, in, in Shemaim will be much lesser. Or if it's a high level of tshuva, he could turn all of the sins into mitzvot, 
which now instead of him getting punished for the sins, he now gets rewarded for that because now they've turned into mitzvot. A Noahide does not have that option. A Noahide, at best case scenario, at best case scenario, can improve his actions moving forward. Meaning, he used to be a thief, he stopped stealing. He used to be an idol worshiper, he stops being an idol worshiper. He used to be whatever he was, and he stops doing it, and moving forward is good, but everything he did in the past, he will be punished for. So, yes, he has tshuva, but it's not the same. He cannot turn his sins into mitzvot. So, yes, the laws are lesser, but the consequences are more severe in some aspects. So, when it comes to the non-Jews, we're not obligated to convert all of them, but if somebody comes to you and asks you to help them convert, then it's a mitzvah to do so. Next question. Is it bad to do what? To accept money from a non-religious... Accept money in what way? Meaning he donated money to you or he bought something from you? Some, you're allowed to accept money from a non-Jew, from a, uh, from a non-religious Jew. And in fact, most people say you're not allowed to reject it. Uh, or you shouldn't reject it. And the reason why is because it's, uh, he has an opportunity to do a mitzvah. That mitzvah could be enough merit to help him do tshuva. There are certain high-level tzaddikim that will not accept money from a non-religious Jew if they know that that money was made on Shabbat. If you know that that money that he made was made on Shabbat, you're not allowed to accept it. But if if you don't know when he made it, you're allowed to accept it, but some still won't accept it. So you're allowed to accept it, but some are more stringent and they won't accept it. Yes, and people that are mechalal Shabbat, he doesn't accept it. My uh, Rav, Rav Ephraim, does not accept money from people that are violating Shabbat. No, it's a, only a chumrah if it's a person that just is a mechalal Shabbat, but you know he didn't make it on Shabbat. Meaning, if the person is not religious, doesn't keep Shabbat, but he didn't make the money on Shabbat, he made it on a different day, it's a chumrah not to accept his, his money. But if you know he made it on Shabbat and that's the money he's giving you, then it's not a chumrah. You're not allowed to accept it. You're not allowed to benefit from him violating Shabbat. It's not a chumrah. It's, it's, it's alakha. You're not allowed to accept it. So you have to ask the person if he made this money on Shabbat. If he's not a religious person. The point being is that it's a, there are some that are more lenient. There are some that are more lenient and accept all tzedakah uh, because they want people to have the merit, not necessarily because they want to have the money. Uh, and uh, they want people to do tshuva. And you need merit to do tshuva. Not just everybody's going to do tshuva. Yeah. In that same point, um, it says that someone gets to a level of impurity that they don't get from Shemayim to do tshuva. And like, it's like their body rejects, doesn't want them to do tshuva. Like when they want to do mitzvot and they, they don't have the opportunity to do it. How do they Sacrifice. Uh, they're, um, they have to overcome major desires. They have to overcome major desires. Sometimes the uh, money is the, is the only solution. 
where somebody that's, you know, most people love their money more than they love their life, uh, unfortunately. So sometimes people that donate a lot of money, suddenly you'll see them shortly later do tshuva. The guy was as far from, uh, you know, from the Torah as, uh, as Christianity is, but one day you see him do tshuva, the guy is a tzaddik all of a sudden. What happened? He sacrificed a lot of money, sacrificed a lot of work, donated a ton of money to the right cause, and Hashem says, okay, if you want to do that, then I'll open the door and try and, and help you. Sometimes it's something else. Sometimes he has to make a different sacrifice, where he uh, a different good deed that breaks that, a piece of that klipa that's holding him back. Bottom line is, in order to do tshuva, you must have merit. In order to have merit, you must have mesirut nefesh, sacrifice. Sacrifice comes in forms of money, as for, in forms of controlling your desires, in forms of different different things. Uh, but uh, it's it's not easy, but it's possible. If you're alive, it's still possible. Everybody can do tshuva. Next question. If I know it, I'll ask. I'll answer. Does it have to do with anything? Ask. Why do you say Hallel on Rosh Chodesh? You're thanking Hashem for renewing the month. No, no. You say Hallel on Rosh You say Hallel anytime there's something significant. Hallel on Rosh Chodesh, Hallel on holidays and so on. You're thanking Hashem an extra thank you. It's an extra thank you. The Chachamim in the old days had a uh, the structure of the Torah is that they had the Torah, they wanted us to complete the entire Chumash once every three years. So the way that the Torah was originally broken up was that we would complete the entire Chumash once every three years. So in some cases it would be we would only learn part of a parasha, not even a complete parasha, and uh, we would. But as long as we would complete the entire Chumash once every three years. But after uh, a while, they noticed that many people, the generations continue to deteriorate, and many people are starting to forget. They're starting to forget what happened in previous parashot, and they're not connecting the dots. They're not connecting what happened to Moshe Rabbeinu when he was still uh, you know, living in Egypt with uh, the stories that are happening in, let's say, parashat Bamidbar, or in Bechukotai, or Kitavo, or so on. So they condensed it to now we have to finish the entire Chumash once every year. Once every year. Now since there are more parashot, then we have weeks that we'll read them in. Since we have holidays, there are many holidays during the year, Baruch Hashem, that we don't read parashat Shavua. The only way to finish the entire Chumash is by having certain weeks that don't have parashot replaced with certain weeks that have multiple parashot. They happen to be next to each other. That's it. Right. Well, we don't want to put too much on the crowd, uh, on the tzibu, by putting two long ones next to each other because somebody has to read it. You're obligated to read it three times every week, each parasha. So if, let's say, for example, they had two really long parashot, 
it will be very hard for people to not only read it in shul, but to read it on their own. You're supposed to study it every week. So usually the, uh, the, the weeks that we have two parashot, it's usually two short ones right next to each other. Or it's one short one and one long one. But usually it's two short ones. Usually to try to keep it to somewhere in the neighborhood of 125 to 140 psukim. That's around the range. This is something that happens in Shemaim. There is a malach, there's a bereta that says, there's a malach by the name of Israel. Rabbi Akiva says, there's, a, there's an angel called Chaya. Chaya is a certain type of angel. Certain, there's levels of angels. One of these Chayot is called Israel. And this Chaya lives in the middle of the cosmos, in the middle of outer space. It's enormous, and it has on the top of on his forehead. You listening? On his forehead, it has engraved the name Israel, and he has one job. What's his job? Twice a day, he tells to all of the creations, "Baruchu et Hashem mevorach." Blessed Hashem's name, the blessed. And all of the creations respond, all of the angels, all of the demons, all of the animals, all of the creations that hear this are obligated to bless Hashem's name. Why? Because the Gemara in Masechet Chagigah says, if a person does not find a way to sanctify Hashem's name, it was better off for him to never be born. This is one way for you to sanctify Hashem's name. We're in essence joining them, not copying them. We're joining what they're doing. It's a specific times that he does it. It's a specific time that we do it. Same. Sanctifying Hashem's name. There's also deeper meaning to it in Kabbalah and, and, and other and Chazal. To talk about it. I'm just giving you brief answers. I'm assuming that you have uh, a few more questions and everyone's getting tired. If you uh, try to focus more on some of the things I see during the shiur and not the phone, you'll see that I actually covered that answer. But yes, the whole point of tshuva is to disconnect from this world and realize this world is temporary. This world is temporary. It's a prosdo. It's a corridor. Now, if let's say, for example, we'll finish with this because I think everybody's tired, myself included. Uh, let's say you go into a your friend's castle and you see that he spent all of his money, everything, to put all the furniture and all the paintings and all the jewels and all everything just in a little tiny little hallway. Is this a normal friend or is this person crazy? crazy. Why? Because the rest of the castle is empty now because he put everything, he invested everything in this tiny little corridor. What are you supposed to really do? You're supposed to put everything everywhere else. So investing everything into the materialism of this world leaves your real world, your eternity, empty. And that's a mistake. Your real world, your real life is eternity. It's beyond this world. That's what you have to invest in. Not just this world. We're not saying 
go be homeless in the middle of the street because that also will defeat the purpose. You're not going to be able to do Hashem's will if you're in the middle of the street homeless. But at the same token, to spend all of your efforts trying to become uh, part of the Forbes 500 is not going to help your cause. You don't need to be rich in order to be a good Jew. In fact, it's easier to become a good Jew if you're not rich. It's easy to become a good Jew if you're not rich. So, Bezat Hashem, this year, if we heard it and then listen to it again when it's posted online on the website, BezatHashem.org, and on our YouTube channel, Bezat Hashem, um, people listen to this year a few times and the one before it, 106 and 107, and listen to each one of them at least five or ten times. Because this is something that's very, very critical to our generation. Most people think that the Avodah Zarah, the idol worship, was destroyed after the Bet Mikdash. It's wrong. It was not destroyed. It just changed form. It changed from idols in the middle of the street to money that's in your pocket or on your computer. The more we realize that making money the focal point of our life is bad for us, it's bad for our castle in Shemaim, it's bad for our eternity, the more likely we are to succeed doing tshuva. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen ve'amen.